This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Bailey Gifford Prize podcast. I'm your host, Razia Iqbal, and in this series we'll be speaking with some past winners joined by guest hosts and we'll be following the 2019 prize as it unfolds in the autumn when the winner will be announced on the 19th of November at a dinner generously hosted by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Now, as you know, the podcasts are part of the prize's 21st anniversary celebrations and I am delighted to say that our first programme... We are joined by two very exciting past winners, Philippe Sands and Skyping in all the way from Sydney, Anna Funder. Thank you both for joining us. Let's talk uh, initially, both of you, about uh, the two books that you won the prize for. Anna Funder, Stasiland, uh, when it was the Samuel Johnson Prize. Just take us back to that moment. It was the Samuel Johnson. It was 2004 and I won it for my first book, which was a book called Stasiland which was about four people who'd really heroically kind of resisted the East German dictatorship um, behind the Berlin Wall. And it also comprised a bunch of interviews with a range of Stasi men, a range of kind of creepiness and um, denial there. So I, I was about six months pregnant and I flew from Sydney to London. I think I just scraped in. I had to get medical permission from the airlines and all this kind of thing. So I was in this very sort of vague and also expectant, not to make a terrible pun, state. And I won the prize that year. It was absolutely extraordinary for me. I mean, it was really genuinely life-changing. Philippe Sands, you won more recently with East West Street... Not your first book, but the first of a particular kind of book. Yeah, I think I think it might have been my sixteenth book because I write crushingly tedious academic <laughs> texts read by eight people and their dog. And this was the first book, in fact, very partly I think inspired by Anna's work um, of opening up my own voice, talking about myself, talking about family, talking about very personal things. And as with Anna, it was an amazing evening. I mean, I remember it. Incredibly well, it took place around the corner from where we're now sitting. Um, I went in, I think low expectations would be generous, no expectations, because I was up against <laughs> a really good friend who went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for his book and a Nobel Prize winner and another Pulitzer Prize winner. And I just thought, with my wife, oh, we'll just have a great evening. I mean, it's just amazing to be here. So it was um, a bit of a surprise. But also, as Anna said, it, it's changed things very dramatically. It's had a big impact. Let's before we talk about the specifics of of the the stories that you have both told. I, I'd like to hear about the impact. Anna, you said uh, quite profoundly, life changing. Yes, absolutely life changing. Um, I think f- for me, I you know this was my first book, and it was published in Australia by a, an independent press. Um, so it was published later by Granter, also independent in the UK. And I remember they put on the cover of it, they put a cover that was completely irrelevant to the book. It looked like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, a nightclub door bitch on the cover. It was this incredibly glamorous woman wearing, you know, very tight-fitting clothes, bright red. <laughs> had nothing, nothing to do with the book. And Might I have increased its that, sales, though, unfortunately. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. <laughs> and I think that they just thought to themselves, oh, my God. 
yes, we like this book, but it's by a completely unknown author about a country that doesn't exist anymore. And when it did exist, no one was interested in it. So we better just put this door bitch on the cover. And I think, you know, the Samuel Johnson really just took this book way out of that slightly perhaps insecure local league, if you like. And I think that an international prize can do that really wonderfully for authors around the world. And it certainly did it for me. I mean, I'm interested in in the fact that you're both lawyers. Uh, Anna, you were a lawyer. Um, Philippe, your work as a barrister has continued, but but the, this book has completely shifted your personal interests. It has. I mean, we can come back to the connections between our lives, and I'd be interested to hear also for Anna how much the training as a lawyer, the being of a lawyer, informs who we are and how we think and how we write. But, but for, for me... The Bailey Gifford was transformative, exactly as Anna says. I mean, to give a hard example, um, I think the book had been bought for translation in two or three languages by the time, at the time the award was announced. And within weeks, I mean, literally more than a dozen foreign rights were sold, and it's now uh, over 20 copies, which is sort of way more than anything I've had before. And and what that does is it, it um, gives you, as Anna said, a access to a completely different set of readers in countries around the world, Russia, China, Korea, you know, apart from Ukraine, Poland, Germany, which I'm particularly interested in, and France, of course. And and it's that global reach that it was, for me, absolutely transformative, because what you then start getting is the feedback from readers uh, and people you go to at events, in bookshops or at festivals around the world. And so all of a sudden... It ceases to be an an inner project or a local project, and it becomes a much broader project. Well, let, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about the 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 substance of of both the books because there are lots of connections and and overlaps. I mean, not not least that both of these books deal with big politics, grand politics, if you like, but how they affect individual lives. Uh, and I'm interested that for both of you. The germ of it was something very, very personal and very particular. Anna, you were working for a television station and the the impulse of your your curiosity, the, your curiosity was piqued by a letter from a man in Argentina. Tell us about that. <laughs> yes, well, actually, um, my impulse was piqued before then as an undergraduate student when I was studying at the Free University in Berlin. And I was studying there when the war was still up. So I was, it was the winter semester, 87, 88. And I happened to meet by absolute fluke some East German writers and artists, some of them very good ones, who'd been kicked out of their country. So they were living in West Berlin and we would be having lunch in a cafe in Kreuzberg and we could see the wall behind which were their ex-wives or children, their past lives, and they couldn't get there. And I'd been brought up at school and at the university studying East German literature and West German literature separately, but taught very much to keep an open mind. It could be a better society, possibly, my sort of socialist Catholic teachers were telling me. But I just thought, what kind of place kicks out its best and brightest? And I couldn't get there, I couldn't see it. So that my curiosity was intensely piqued by thinking, 
I need to go and see the past of these people. And when the wall came down, I was able to do that. So it was personal in that sense. The letter from Argentina, so I was working um, in Berlin. I had a very lucrative one-day job one day a week job, lucrative in the sense of I had a very cheap life, <laughs> um, answering viewer mail from around the world to Deutsche Welle. And there was a letter um, from a man in Argentina. Uh, who, oh, there were letters from all over the world. But he was saying, you know, why why don't people have a look at what's going on in that regime? And I was very curious to, to be able to do that. I think... Um, Philippe is very generous to talk about me as an ex-lawyer. I don't really think that my name and his can go in the same sentence together about <laughs> lawyering, so I think we should come to that very separately. <laughs> One of the things that this man said in the letter was um, because the, his idea was that the, the stories of these people in, in the former GDR should be examined and, and looked at, and and in fact he was told by your superiors that 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 you know that that wasn't going to happen that wasn't the remit of of Deutsche Welle but he said history is made of personal stories and the past is being swept under the carpet i i wonder about the impact of that on on you because what you've done is take personal stories anna and and really helped us to understand that period of history that's such an interesting question and I've been grappling with it now because this year is the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So there are a series of commemorations happening in Germany. Um, but we see, unlike, I'd be very interested to hear um, from Philippe about this as well, unlike in the Nazi regime where um, there were the Nuremberg trials and Nazi insignia, symbols, gestures were outlawed, none of that happened with the East German regime. So the ex-Stasi uh, purloined state funds in the billions and now they changed the name from the SED party of East Germany to the PDS and now they are the Linke, other sort of successor party to them. And they, so ex-Stasi are involved and have been the whole time in uh, politics in Germany. They are now on the ascendant and the voices of the people who resisted are very much still being swept under the carpet to the extent that ex-Stasi and SED party went to the highest court in Germany and had their very uh, full and rich pensions recognised. So they are recognised for their work under the dictatorship by democratic Germany, whereas there are no reparations payments honouring as compensation, the people who resisted and the former political prisoners. Instead, they're thrown onto the welfare system and they get an extra 300 euros a month if they fall below a very low level of income. So there's no sort of honouring of the Geschwister Scholl or any anti-Nazi um, people either. And I was, I've been really wondering about this question and it goes to partly the importance of the Samuel Johnson and the Bailey Gifford in that I, the stories that I were telling, was telling in Stasiland were not welcome in Germany. There was a sort of resounding, very loud silence, if you can have such a thing, because no, everybody wanted just to sort of get along. And in the absence of any international trials 
all I had was this little book telling stories no one wanted to hear. But they still don't. And what we're seeing now, rather extraordinarily, is the rise of a movement backed by um, SED and East German sort of sympathetic voices saying the GDR needs a new narrative. Um, we want to tell a new narrative. They want a new story. And they want, for instance, for the former political prisoners who take tours of the prison at Hornschönhausen where they were kept, they're saying those people are not actually objective enough and we should get rid of them, the eyewitnesses, and have historians in there instead. So this is a complex issue, but it's it's really amazing. interesting. We, well, we'll come back to talking about um, the the importance of remembering and how we remember uh, in, in in a moment. I I want to ask Philippe about um, the personal impulse that that led to writing East West Street. Um, it was an invitation, Philippe, to Lviv to give a lecture on what in twenty ten. In twenty ten, again, very similar to Anna in the sense that it resonates with personal backgrounds where you happen to be in life at a particular moment. I get this invitation, would I like to give a lecture on the work that I do, the cases that I do, on crimes against humanity and genocide. And the letter comes from an obscure town. Well, I thought it was obscure. I now realise it's not at all obscure. Um, and an even more obscure university with, a, as I discover, a fantastically distinguished uh, history, an amazing place with an amazing intellectual tradition called uh, Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg, and the law faculty there. And dis I discover completely by accident that the originators of the concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide both came not only from that city, but from that university, and no one knew it. And it, I turned up as a sort of returning hero. But of course, the real reason that I accepted was not that I had a desire to give a lecture. But my grandfather was born in that city in 1904. And I really, it was very simple. I just wanted to find the house where he was born. And that desire, that very human instinct to know who he was and to know who I was and to know what actually happened to him because he never talked about it. I knew him very well for 37 years and he never talked about what happened was the motivator for that. So it's a very parallel story in a sense to Anna's is that it's this melding of our personal stories, our family history, where we happen to be, and odd documents or invitations that come our way. Well, let's let's talk about the odd documents and and the and the kind of journey of the storytelling that both of you uh, manifest in in your books. Because for both of you, it it seems to me that this is about um, this is about unearthing things and uh, being. Historians, you know, you are investigating a history, and and Philippe, in your case, it 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 almost feels coincidental that you encounter lots of different things that you then make connections with. I mean, for a start, you do the unusual thing in your book of telling people about the difficulty of there being no documentation to begin with, and the documentation that you have regarding your grandfather is is scant, but still are able to do something with it. It's scant, but it's not non-existent. And I think probably Anna and I would agree that lawyers are not good for very much. But one of the things we are good at <laughs> is finding information because we have to stand up in front of judges and prove things. And proving things needs evidence and evidence needs documents or testimony and that sort of thing. So one of the things I love doing in life is when I'm doing a case is going off and finding um, the evidence. And my mother... For the first time, I can't believe it. I was 50 years old, and I said to her, is there anything from Lemberg? 
And she said, actually, there is. And for the first time in my life, I saw a bundle of documents from which I was able to work out quite a lot. The subject of coincidence, I think, is really interesting and complex. Um, I became an international lawyer because of a single teacher I had at university, Elie Lauterpacht, who was the son of Hirsch Lauterpacht, the man who basically invented the concept of crimes against humanity as a legal concept. Um, Ellie and I started work together. I was his student in 1982. Um, we worked together for 36 years before he died a couple of, couple of years ago. Um, it was only in 2014 that we learned that his father, Hirsch, and my great-grandmother, Amalia, came not only from the same region, not only from the same town, but lived on the very same street. Now, how do you explain that? Is that coincidence? Is that something else? It's a subject of rampant debate in our household. I think it's not coincidence. I think there are. I think we have other ways of communicating that we don't fully understand. My wife, Natalia, says that's nonsense. It's total coincidence. And if I were to go to the movies tonight and ask 100 people in the audience, where are you from? Someone in the audience would have a relative who's born on that street in the small town of Kiev. So <laughs> what is and is not coincidence is, 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 is a complicated matter. Anna, what do you think? I think Philippe was um, absolutely predestined to be the wonderful international lawyer and writer that he is. He had no choice. Once those two people were born on that street, the rest is history. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested in, uh, in hearing from both of you how you how you embarked on the research. Once, Anna, you had discovered or you had found um, or been told about Miriam Weber, who is central to your your book. I mean, there are many other characters there, but her story is is unbelievably powerful. Um, what what made you think? Okay, I need to I need to make her the person who will lead the reader through exactly how the Stasi impact on individual lives. It is. Um, I, I did meet her very early on in doing the work. I mean, I, I was, I had a fellowship in Germany in the 90s and I had to write up a report and I'd sort of heard about her. And once I wrote up the report, I thought I just couldn't get her out of my head and I'd never met her. So then I, I stopped my work in the law actually and cobbled together some money and left my boyfriend who I subsequently married because he waited and went to Germany for, and went to Germany for a year and looked her up and found her and so I had a bit riding on her really I was taking a bit of a risk but when I, I went to Le I was living in Berlin and I went to Leipzig to meet her and when I got back having spent an hour, a day and a night with her I said to my then flatmates, this is the story. I have got the best story I'm going to find. And they just laughed at me like I was being silly because I was at the beginning of this journey and, journey and how could I know? But I absolutely knew. She was an extraordinarily brave person who could describe in the only way, the only way really to deal with the chicanery of interrogation and being spied on by the Stasi and having the Stasi orchestrate your husband's funeral after he's died in suspicious circumstances in custody. All of these things was with great irony and great humour. And that's such an unusual thing to be able to have that sense of absurdity on your own life. Absurdity usually would require a certain distance or at least the possibility of escape, neither of which 
she had had at that time. And yet she had herself a kind of storyteller's distance on this very bizarre and horrific and intimate story of Stasi interference in her life. And also I just loved her. I just really loved her. So I, I, I just thought I need to do her justice. And as a writer, my best work comes out of perhaps this is the residual, never properly satisfied wannabe lawyer. You know, my best writing comes out of a sense of wanting to do someone's story justice. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about loving her because we love her. As the reader, we love her too because she's she's heroic, she's committed, she's consistent. There's nothing about her that doesn't make you go, wow, what an extraordinary young woman at the time when she first tried to cross the wall. I, it really astonishing, astonishing find um, from, from your perspective as a storyteller, but also the reality of her life really comes through. Uh, Philippe, let's pick up on, on this idea of coincidences. I mean, the title of your book, East West Street, comes from a passage in Joseph Roth's book um, from 1927, The Wandering Jews, which is about... East Central European Jewry, in which Lviv, Lemberg, um, was also Roth's home. And, and it's described as this gateway between East and, uh, and West. Your discovery of that city then allows you to tell the story peopled by these incredible characters. Tell us a little more. East West Street is actually the street that Hirsch Lauterpacht and Amalia Buchholz Flash, my great-grandmother, uh, lived on. And, and I take that name... The title of the book, which I'm very grateful to my wonderful editor in uh, New York, Alfred Knopf, Vicky Wilson, who came up with, with that idea, um, because it describes the heart of the book. But listening to Anna, rather as her book is situated in a former country, um, mine also is territorially very situated in a particular city, a closed city, actually remarkably, Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg, was closed to the West for 50 years, from well, from nearly 50 years, from 1945 until 1991, when the when the wall fell. So it's there is a, a parallel connection then, and the place is at the heart of the book, but, but but the place is only at the heart of the book because of the people. And listening to Anna just now, and of course reading Stasi Land, um, which I've read twice, the, the heart of it is individual narratives. And I think what Anna and I both share is a love of talking to people. There are no uninteresting people. There is no uninteresting conversation. You have it actually also, Razi. That's what you do. We, we all, what we share is a joy of knowing that with every human being, there are stories. And the trick, if you like, is to build up a relationship in which those stories come tumbling out and then to work out which of the many stories come tumbling out are of interest for a broader public. But I think what Stasiland and East West Street might share at the heart of it is human stories that resonate for readers, that where a reader will connect with one or more characters in some way and feel, hmm, that could be my story or this relates to me. And it's that sense of teasing out the unexpected and doing it in a very trusting way. Again, I think it comes back to being lawyers in a certain sense, because one of the things, I don't know what your life was, Anna, as a lawyer, but mine includes, you know, preparing witnesses, talking to people, getting stories out of people. And that relationship is a relationship that develops over years. You don't just go in a room, spend an hour with someone and hope to get something out of them. It's a nurturing, trusting, 
complex relationship. I mean, my relationship with Nicholas Frank, the son of Hans Frank, the governor general of Nazi-occupied Poland. Hitler's lawyer. Hitler's personal lawyer from 28 to 33. That relationship has now gone on for seven or eight years, and it's an incredibly complex and interesting relationship that I value greatly, um, in which tiny nuggets of information come out, and they come out in the context of a trusting two-way relationship. And I suspect with Stasiland also, it's that it's that two-way relationship, because it's not just that Anna and I are learning things from the people that we're speaking to, but but they are working with us to tell stories that perhaps they thought were not of great interest, but in fact resonate with a much bigger audience. I, I'm interested in this idea that there it, it isn't just the engagement with individuals and the stories that they tell, but there is also a dimension of darkness. You know, when you when yes. you met certain former uh, Stasi officers or informers, it, it, there is a real sense in the book that you know, even if you're not in direct danger, but there is you are in the presence of real darkness. Yes, I think I um, I think that's true. I think people overestimate, you know, how brave I was. I didn't feel it particularly at the time. I was aware that these were men who had organized um, and carried out really very evil things on their countrymen and women. But I was also aware that they did it by committee. It was a kind of modern hideousness um, and everything was um, minuted very exactly for instance there's a if they didn't want to put you in prison or exile you um, there were less obvious and expensive ways of destroying someone in situ as it were there's a German word called Zersetzung where the Stasi would um, spread rumors about you to ruin your marriage, your relationship with everyone that you knew, your working life, so that you would be ostracized and psychologically destroyed in your own in your own life. So the things that they would and that was minuted, and that would be a committee that did that, and it would go up and be approved all the way up. These were not hot-blooded. Latin American Secret Service people who would throw me out of a helicopter or anything. These were, in a sense, um, functionaries of evil, but not courageous themselves in any way. So I didn't ever feel they were going to do anything awful to me. Funnily enough, um, I mentioned that they they persisted after the fall of the wall and they exist in whatever forms. Now, there was a group of them called Das Insider Committee which is a great word for a group of ex-Secret Service people. But they they sort of got wind a bit of the jargon of democracy. And in the 90s, they changed their name to the Society for the Protection of Civil Liberties and the Dignity of Man. Um, rather unironically, I can never say that without smiling. So this group of hideous, rather hideous Stasi men. And the acronym is GBM. And shortly after the book won the Samuel Johnson I came back home um, and I was in my attic working and I got an email saying that this group formerly does Insider Comité and now the GBM were suing me for things that I had said in the book um, which had actually been on the public record they were not my discoveries 
about what they were doing after the fall of the wall to former citizen rights activists in unified democratic Berlin, like picking up Jürgen Fuchs, who was a famous um, activist, his child from school just for a couple of hours to terrify the parents, or delivering unwanted pornography to somebody's wife. Or in one very bizarre episode, or they would cut brake leads as well to kind of reverse engineer accidents. And the most bizarre thing was delivering a truckload of puppies to someone just as a sort of pure act of terrorising power. Anyway, these people were coming to sue me and I was in Sydney and I felt then this kind of frisson of terror which was utterly self-aggrandising because there's nothing they were going to do to me. (laughs) And I thought, I'd better go and have a cup of tea. So I went downstairs and I turned on my tab and no water came out. And I can remember thinking, oh my Lord, these people have no bounds and they're going to thirst me out here in Sydney. (laughs) Really insane. And of course they didn't. But that paragraph was taken out of the book in Germany. In later, you know, more recent editions, I've asked that it be reinstated, but blacked out. So it looks redacted and you can see what the ex-Stasi did to the book and there's a footnote saying that that's what they did. But, you know, these people were also coming to my events when I was on tour in Germany and kind of looking daggers at me and taking notes and doing all this kind of thing. So you realise, I mean, in connection with the Samuel Johnson, you just realise how important it is to hold on to that and just think this, even though it's going to be, this book is going to sit on a wound in Germany um, it's been recognised outside of there. So I can kind of um, comfort myself a little bit, I mm. guess, with that. Philippe, what about the, the, the reaction to your to your book, uh, not just on a personal level, but, but in the countries in which it, it's about? Oh, my word. I mean, um, I don't know whether you went through this, Anna, but I just, I've been deluged with communications of all sorts. A lot of people who are victims not just from what happened in the 30s and the 40s, but from other stories around the world, wanting help, research assistance, people who want to go back, find things, documents. But also a lot of correspondence from children and grandchildren of people I write about in the book. Um, immensely rude letters uh, <laughs> saying, I've shown X or Y in an inadequately positive light. I haven't been sufficiently glowing. Why don't I change this word or that word to make my father or grandfather look even better or even worse? I kid you not. And this is really focusing my attention. Um, Right now, I'm writing the sequel, which is one of the characters from East West Street, is a man called Otto Wächter, who was the governor of Galicia um, and Krakow and who uh, escaped... Uh, on the 9th of May, 1945, uh, and disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, It's the subject of a BBC podcast that I made last year called The Rat Line. I'm now going into much more detail in the book. Uh, And it's premised on my relationship with Otto Wächter's son, uh, Horst. And it's a complex relationship because Horst, unlike Nicholas Frank, who hates his father, Hans Frank, and thinks he was a criminal who deserved to die, Horst loves his father, Otto, and this gives rise to a real complexity. And so there's a complex relationship that on the one hand, I'm sort of fascinated and horrified by the things Horst says to me. On the other hand, I feel very protective uh, towards him. And on this issue of legacy, I'm fascinated listening to Anna because you've got it in relation to Stasiland and the GDR. I've got it in relation to things that happened in the 30s and the 40s. And um, in relation to this Ratline 
project. Right now, I'm dealing with the consequence of the podcast in a couple of newspaper articles that appeared in Austria that have caused absolute mayhem in the Wächter family, in which I'm trying to keep my eye on the ball. What is the right thing to do in all circumstances? There are people in the family who are furious that Horst has spoken with me at all, because what his speaking with me has done is it has ended the sort of Persilschein, the cleansing of the Wächter name, the disappearance of the Wächter name is now back in the public domain. And grandchildren and great-grandchildren are outraged that they are being, quote-unquote, damaged uh, by allegations, which are entirely true, <laughs> of things that happened seven or eight decades ago. So one of the things that I find fascinating, and also listening to Anna, because it's the same thing, it's this legacy issue. These things just go on and on and on. And you think they've come to an end and we've moved on to different places, but life just isn't like that. It, it, I think what we've both experienced is that for those who lived in the regime, but also for their successors, for their children and their children's children, what did and did not happen and how you talk and write about what did and did not happen has an enduring legacy and real consequences today. And that imposes, I think, a real responsibility on the writer. I feel that acutely. It's really interesting hearing you talk about legacy in the way that you are, Philippe, because it, it's quite clear that in the subject matter that you are covering, we are moving further and further away from living memory. But, of course, the, the descendants of those people are, are still around. And, and, and I think I'd, I'd like to end just by reflecting a little bit on the importance of chronicling and recognising uh, the stories and unearthing the stories. Uh, Anna, it, it just feels as though Germany has done probably more than any other country in terms of confronting the really terrible past uh, of, the, of the Nazi era, uh, but clearly a lot less so in terms of the, the, the communist GDR. And, and I wonder about how how important you feel this still is it goes back to your first answer really that the way in which these groups have reconstituted if you like and and are still present in in german politics today how important do you think it feels to germans who live in what was the former gdr um to to continue to hear these stories to continue to have them told well, they haven't wanted to hear the stories of Miriam, Julia, Frau Paul and Klaus Renf, two of the people who I, I mean, I, I had no trouble finding them. There were tens of thousands of people who resisted at great cost the tyranny that was in East Germany. And my real interest was in kind of looking at human conscience and courage in the individual against what they knew in their gut was a um, an unjust regime. And All That I Am, the novel that I wrote, which is much more in Philippe's era, it's the, you know, the rise of Nazism and that's based on true stories as well, is again, how do people do this, what seems like a very anti-Darwinian, self-destructive thing of speak out when they know that it's going to go badly for them? And I think the answer is we, our conscience is what connects us to the group and we are group creatures and tyranny is very bad for the group and there will always be people who will speak out against it. Um, the lesson that 
not listening to say the people in Stasiland or the in general the people who resisted or the eyewitnesses who are at Hohenschönhausen. The tyrannies are on the rise everywhere, not in Germany, although despite the AFD, but they are really, and dictatorships are on the rise. There's no easy sense, I think Philippe would hopefully agree with me, that democracy in a sort of Francis Fukuyama way has won the day in some easy way at all. You look at Donald Trump, who's extremely autocratic and dictatorial and um, he ha he doesn't have a democratic impulse. So honouring people who will speak out is to recognise the people who are going to make us safe the next time it happens. And so without that, if it, it, we are not safe. And I think that's where perhaps the, the lawyering connection comes. I mean, I'm a lapsed lawyer from a long time ago, but that, that would be the only bow I could draw with Philippe's wonderful uh, human rights work. No such thing as a lapsed lawyer, Anna. Once a lawyer, <laughs> always a lawyer. Um, I think you're right. I mean, there's no doubt Donald Trump would cut a deal with Adolf Hitler. And that fact raises the most serious consequences and the serious concerns. Um, listening to Anna, I mean, it occurs to me that the act of courage is the act of speaking. It almost doesn't matter what you say. I'm acutely aware of this now because I'm, I'm dealing with someone, Horst von Werchter, who says things about his father's past that I fundamentally disagree with. But he's talking, he's sharing documents, he's engaging. And that is incredibly important. So I'm wondering that it's not so much what people say, but the mere fact of talking and the opposite of talking is silence and burial. And we know that silence and burial doesn't make things go away. They continue to fester underground, and at some point, they emerge. And I think what both books do um, is celebrate the act of expression. And what Bailey Gifford has done is give a voice to that act of expression, which then has consequences. Anna's described very powerfully the consequences of a group of readers who didn't like what she was writing. I felt that. I understand exactly what she was saying. And that imposes a real responsibility. I don't know, Anna, whether you feel that going forward. I feel it going forward of even greater care with the words we choose and how we express things in order to be honest and, and to be fair and to be balanced uh, and to make sure that those views that we don't like get a proper airing so that there's a, a counterpoint. But it's, I think it is silence that unites us in the sense that we have constitutional, deep personal objection to silence. We want to speak, we want to write, we want to hear. And readers all over the world are completely grateful to you both for doing it. Anna, do, do, do come in and say what you're going to say. No, no, I was just going to um, say that I think Philippe really nailed it when he says it's the voices that we don't want to hear um, that's important to be able to listen to. And that's precisely why the Stasi were, um, although they weren't going to thirst me out, why they would <laughs> sue to get that denied. And I think that's exactly exactly the point and that is the thing that's going to save us from tyranny is the uh, the training in listening to voices that we disagree with and and where you see that not happening is where you see the danger 
Well, I couldn't have asked for two more brilliant uh, speakers for this first uh, Bailey Gifford podcast. Thank you both, Philippe Sands and Anna Funder. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting the podcast series and award ceremony. The winner of this year's prize will be announced on the 19th of November. To find out more about the Bailey Gifford Prize, do head over to the website www.thebaileygiffordprize.co.uk or follow us on social media and join in the conversation. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. 